The reading for tonight's scripture comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. The word of God speaks to us. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? This is God's word to us. Awesome. Amen. Hey, guys, good evening. It's, uh, it's good to see you guys tonight. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I serve as the lead pastor of this congregation. And, uh, man, I'm really, really thankful to be here with you. As I was looking around the room tonight, I was just reflecting on what a gift it is to have young men and women in their 20s. And uh, I'm really thankful you're here. Thankful you're here. I'm thankful for all of you, but in particular, I'm thankful that God's doing something in our church that is countercultural to what's happening across the United States. And uh, as a dad of two young adults, and as a guy that planted this church in 2005 in hopes of seeing young men and young women follow Jesus, it makes me really happy that you're here. So thanks for being here tonight. Um, tonight, as we continue on in 1 Corinthians, we're reminded again of the reason we preach through books of the Bible. We, we preach through whole books of the Bible uh, for a lot of reasons. Two big reasons include the necessity of covering things that we would be tempted to avoid out of cowardice. There are parts of the Bible that we would ignore, that we would overlook, that we really need, that speak the heart of God to us, that we find ourselves having to wrestle with if, uh, if we sit under God's word. And the second reason we love to preach through books of the Bible is because in this particular moment with a billion different voices wanting your attention, so many influencers, so many voices, so many salesmen, you don't need another hot take. You need to hear from the living God. And the living God speaks to us in his word, and what we find in his word is good news for us, even the hard bits of it. So uh, I'm gonna pray for you guys, ask you to pray for me, and we're gonna dive in and do some work. Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, you can flip there on your phone or open the pages. And if you don't have a Bible, before you leave tonight, grab one from one of the window sills downstairs and take that with you. <clears throat> Father, this has been a really, really rich day. And uh, I'm so thankful for what you're doing in your church. I thank you for your presence tonight. I thank you for your help tonight. Lord, I ask uh, as we open your word that you would Help us to see Jesus, that you would shape and form our lives to look more like Jesus. And I pray that the places that we find our hearts resisting your word tonight, 
uh, you would help us to not skip over that resistance or ignore it, but that we would sit there and invite you into it. Pray that your truth would prevail. I pray uh, where we think we've had good news from the world and it's actually bondage, that the good news of Jesus would set us free. Pray for both singles and married people in the room that you would do deep stuff. We ask this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. Hey, before we dive into this text tonight, I wanna ask you guys to do two things. Um, it, it's funny how 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, uh, they, are fo- they, they actually follow in the footsteps of 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 1 through 7, chapter 9. Does that make sense? Uh, just doing a little math for you guys in case you're confused. And I say that because when we're walking through a book of the Bible, it's not lost on me that not all of you guys were here last week when we walked through the preceding verses. And I'm not mad at you. That's not a judgmental statement or a manipulative statement. It's just a statement of fact. And to dive into the stream tonight, to jump into the flow of what we're gonna talk about, assumes that the logic of what Paul's doing in chapter six and the logic of what Paul's doing in chapter seven, one through nine, are connected to what he's about to say to us. So I don't want you to be lost. I don't want you to be confused. I want you to see the full picture of what we're wrestling with in this meaty bit of 1 Corinthians. And so uh, two things that I would recommend to you. The first thing I would recommend is that if you weren't here, go back, you can get it on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast, and, and listen to the last couple of weeks of sermons. Understanding marriage requires that you in part have an understanding of God's view for sexuality and God's view for your body. And we covered that in chapter six. In addition, last week, my buddy Kevin Colley did a fantastic job of talking about God's gift of marriage as a gift and God's gift of singleness as a gift. And I'm gonna feel the temptation in this moment tonight as we walk through these verses in re-preaching those sermons, but I can't do it. We, We don't have time. And so will you go back and will you listen to those because it's connected and you need both. The second thing I would commend to you is a sermon that I did in October of last year when we were walking through the Gospel of Mark that was a comprehensive deep dive into the teachings of Jesus and all the teachings in the New Testament on marriage and divorce, marriage and divorce. Um, Our text today is gonna mention marriage and divorce, but it's gonna mention it briefly, and I don't have the time to do the deep, nuanced work around the complexities and, and frankly, the scars that are in this room around marriage and divorce. And so that sermon will be helpful for you. It's a nuanced sermon, it's a deep dive sermon. And so today, as we walk through this text, if this raises questions, If you're in a situation where you're wondering if you have biblical grounds for divorce, please please go back and do your work. Um, If you've gone through divorce and you're trying to figure out what the heart of God is for you, like does God want you, does God love you, do you have a scarlet letter, I would commend that sermon to you because the heart of God for you is a heart of restoration and redemption in Jesus. Now, with that in mind, let me say this as we dive in. Um, One of my favorite things that C.S. Lewis ever wrote, and and I love almost everything he ever wrote, was an analogy that he made comparing human beings to an armada of ships, an armada of ships. And, And what he says in this analogy is that there's three kinds of ethics, there's three kinds of ethics that the armada needs if it's going to arrive at its final destination. The first kind of ethics that we need if the human ship is gonna stable through the sea and not freak out are the ethics that relate to personal virtue. 
What does it look like to grow as a person of depth and virtue? What does it look like to push against the ocean and to be seaworthy? How do we not take on water? How do we not become people so controlled by our vices that we end up at the bottom of the Pacific? That's personal ethics. There's a second kind of ethics that we need though in the Armada, and those are social ethics. How do I keep from crashing my ship into your ship and killing both of us? How do we relate to each other? How do we forgive each other? How do we walk with one another? Now, those are really important, and our culture talks a little bit about social ethics. We talk almost zero about personal ethics, but there's a third kind of category that our culture is completely numb to in every way. And the third category of ethics have to do with the destination of the ships. Where are the ships actually going and who owns the ships? And how do you chart a course to get to the destination that you were actually designed to get to? Philosophers called that telos, or the end for which you were created. And in our particular moment, when it comes to marriage and divorce and singleness and sexuality, one of the great problems we have is we don't have a vision for what any of these things are for. I was listening to a Joe Rogan podcast last week and he was debating a guy and they were talking about gender and it was really interesting because one of the things I like about Rogan and there's a billion things I don't like and a lot of things I disagree with, but one of the things I respect about Rogan is that he tends to engage in good faith arguments where he wants to reasonably and logically hear people that he disagrees with. And as these guys were talking, they were talking about the madness of transgender ideology and they were on the same page. They were like, hey man, you can't can't subjectively control reality inside your mind and demand all people to obey your subjective reality. And then something really interesting started to happen in the conversation. The guy that Rogan was talking to, who happened to be a conservative commentator and a Roman Catholic, they started approaching the topic of marriage. And what was really fascinating is that they couldn't arrive, they couldn't arrive at any answer to the purpose of marriage or the telos of marriage without just saying it's subjective. It's about your personal happiness. And and listen, like, if marriage is a subjective institution that exists for nothing more than your personal happiness, I guarantee you, you're not gonna find personal happiness in your marriage. (laughs) And so what I wanna do today is really simple. I want us to walk through our text. I want us to see what Paul says. It's, it's not a complicated text, although it's not very popular. It's a, it's a straightforward, handoff up the middle text. I want us to look at that, and then I just want us to stop for a few minutes and think about telos. I want us to think about telos. What, what are our bodies for? What is marriage for? What is love for? And, and I want us to think about what is it to be a self with an actual destination. So if that's okay, if we do that work together today, um, follow along with me, we're gonna dive in. Let me remind you what's happening with the Corinthians. There's two big problems that are taking place. uh, And one of the big problems is that they have hook, line, and sinker just believed in Hellenistic dualism. Hellenistic dualism. And, And all that means, quite simply, is that dualism was the belief that your body, your body is at best irrelevant or perhaps even a hindrance to your spiritual growth. And at worst, your body is the enemy of your spiritual growth or a prison that salvation will free you from. 
Now that doesn't come from the Bible, that doesn't come from the teachings of Jesus, that came from Greek philosophy, but people in the city of Corinth that became Christians were so framed by that worldview that they started doing weird things in their relationship with their body. If the body is at best irrelevant and at worst a prison, then some Christians in the city of Corinth were saying, well then, in that case, it doesn't matter what we do sexually, we can sleep with prostitutes. The body has no bearing on my spirituality. I can do anything I wanna do with my body and it doesn't affect my spirit because the body's bad and the spirit's good. Other Christians in Corinth were going the other direction, but they were equally wrong. They were saying, hey, the body is irrelevant, so we can, we can see things like the institution of marriage as just a carnal thing, as a thing that's dirty, sex and the covenant of marriage as being something that's not beneficial and dirty, and they started getting divorces. Christians were divorcing other Christians, and other Christians who became Christians after getting married were perplexed about what to do because they had pagan spouses and they felt like if they lived in marriage with a pagan and if they slept with a pagan spouse, they would be defiled, they would be made dirty. And so Paul's gonna address both of those things in our text today. Follow along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter seven, starting in verse 10. Paul says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Okay, this is basic Christian teaching on the fact that marriage is to be a lifelong covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. Now, let me give you some reasons for that. and We're not gonna go to all the chapters and verses, but here's the logic. The first reason that marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman is because the union between a man and a woman is a unitive union. Paul has quoted Genesis where God said, when God unpacks his vision for creating marriage itself, and God says, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and the two will become one flesh. Marriage is unitive. It's this crazy, miraculous thing where two human beings enter into this relationship and without ceasing to be an individual, they are joined together in body and in soul, relationally and economically. And the logic for marriage being a lifelong union between a man and a woman is because to break that union will have consequences. It results in a fracturing. You can't join something together and then break it apart without it being devastating. The second reason marriage is a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman is the beauty and the mystery of procreation. That is, man is drawn to woman in her otherness. And as man and as woman is drawn to man in his otherness, and as they engage in God's gift of sex, at least the potential exists for God to use that union to bring about the multiplication of image bearers, immortal image bearers of the Most High God to populate the earth. It's a sacred thing. Thirdly, thirdly, it's a lifelong covenant because it's foundational for both family and society. Um, the purpose in God's economy of having moms and dads that stay together and having moms and dads that raise children in the broader community of extended family, church, and nation is because human beings, because of sin, 
left to our own devices, will be savages that will devour each other. And God's good design for the family is that the family would be a place that cultivates virtue. That young men would have dads and moms. And by the way, uh, where the ideal is lacking, God's grace abounds. I know single moms in our church that are amazing. Amazing. I know single dads that are amazing. But what God wants to have is this beautiful union between a husband and a wife in which young men can look at dad who's a man of virtue who shows, not just says, but who shows his son how to talk to a woman, how to treat her, how to love her, how to be gentle to her, how to provide, how to care for her, how to disagree with her with honor and respect. And so that sons can see mom and they can get a picture in their minds of a virtuous woman, the kind of woman that they're to pursue, the kind of woman that Proverbs says we're to prize more than gold. And so that daughters could be raised in a home where they see a dad treating mom with dignity and respect and honor and they could feel their inherent worth from dad and they can watch mom as a woman of courage and faith and tenacity using her gifts for the advancement of God's kingdom. And that union together, that union together has a final purpose which makes it a lifelong covenant and this is the most important one and we're gonna talk about it at the end today Marriage is a lifelong covenant because it points beyond itself to something even more important. It points beyond itself. Now, let me say just a couple of things. Though there are certain situations where divorce might be allowed, and the Bible never requires divorce, but there are certain instances where divorce may be allowed, such as in the case of adultery, the case of abuse, and the case of abandonment. But anytime divorce happens, it's always a tragedy. It always results in pain. It always results in loss. And so Paul's words to the Corinthians is, hey guys, stay married. Stay married. You have this super spiritual theology where you think that marriage doesn't matter and your bodies don't matter. But listen, listen, marriage does matter. Singleness matters too. We're gonna to talk about that again in January. He's got more to say about that gift. But marriage is beautiful and it's important and it's to be lifelong. Now, he's gonna switch gears and now he's gonna talk not to Christians that are married to Christians and wanna get a divorce, but he's gonna to talk to Christians that are married to pagans and want a divorce. Look at verse 12. To the rest I say, I not the Lord, then if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. Okay, a couple things about this. Um, progressive theologians that like to read the Bible but don't like to obey it or believe it have delighted in trying to play Paul and Jesus against each other. They, they love that game. It's like team Paul and team Jesus and they didn't teach the same stuff and preach the same stuff and they love to point to this that Paul says, I not the Lord say, um, and they like to use that as an artifact to say, see, Paul and Jesus were on the same page. Okay, listen, nothing could be further from the truth. Paul is quoting Jesus when he's talking about divorce and remarriage because Jesus taught explicitly about that. And now Paul's addressing something that Jesus in his context didn't have to address, which is the mixed marriages of 
pagans and Christians. That was not something in the context Jesus was speaking. It doesn't make it non-authoritative that Paul says, I, not the Lord. The same spirit of God that inspired all the writings of scripture is inspiring Paul the apostle to bring this instruction to the Corinthians and to you and me. It's authoritative, it's true, it's from God. And what Paul is saying, what Paul is saying is really interesting and it probably shocked the Corinthians that had a low view of sex. He's saying if you're married to a non-believer, don't divorce them. In which case, the Christians are thinking, well like, but you just wrote to us that a husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and a wife should give to the husband his conjugal rights and you shouldn't deprive each other of sexual intimacy except for an agreed upon limited time to devote yourself to prayer. And and the Christians are hearing that and they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. If we don't get out of this marriage with a pagan, aren't we gonna be defiled by sleeping with someone that's not a Christian? And here's what Paul is gonna say in the context of marriage, in the context of marriage, starting in verse 14. He says, for the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or the sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? And how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Here's what Paul is saying, and it's actually really profound. He's saying, instead of being defiled by the non-Christian spouse in the marriage, the Christian spouse in the marriage actually has a sanctifying effect as a conduit of God's presence, God's mercy, and God's grace that the marriage is made holy because of the presence of that follower of Jesus. And their children are made holy. Now, he's not talking about salvation via marriage. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Um, You're not born again because you get married, all right? You're not. We know that from verse 16. He says, how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? That's not what he's driving at. What he is driving at, though, is certainly there's pain and there's longing and there's difficulty in loving Jesus and having a spouse that doesn't love Jesus. And in feeling the tension about how do you raise your kids in that context and how do you work that out? And man, like if you got married and then one of the, one of the partners in a marriage came to faith in Jesus and the other didn't, then the most important thing about you, you don't have in common anymore. But here's what Paul is saying. That may be true, but the sovereign God who ordained that you get married is also the sovereign God who's gonna work through you as a Christian to bring the presence of God and the peace of God and hopefully the salvation of God as you evangelize your spouse and treat them with love. This is what 1 Peter chapter three describes. It talks about husbands being one, evangelized, without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see their respectful and pure conduct. Now, a caveat, and it's a big caveat. Nothing that Paul is saying about Christians staying in marriages with non-Christians applies whatsoever to dating and marrying non-Christians. The Bible is explicitly clear, explicitly clear, that Christians are forbidden from entering into marriage relationships with non-Christians, forbidden. 
And, and I wanna say the thing to all of the folks in the room that are single that I've said many times to my sweet son and my little, my little girl, and that's this, that you have a weird habit or a weird tendency of marrying the people you date. And we can think, well, we're just dating, it's no big deal. I don't care that he is kind of a dirt bag or I don't care that she's kind of a dumpster fire, it's no big deal. Right, and then like six months go by and you're just all enmeshed and in love and you wanna have sex and you're just like, oh, she's the one. He's the one. And you might even mistake like maternal instinct, the same kind of drive ladies that might make you wanna like foster pets. You might mistake that for covenantal union love. <laughs> it's like, I can fix him. I can fix him. I can clean him up. He's a project. And, and I just want to say up front, what Paul is, what Paul is addressing here, he's talking, about, he's talking about a person that met Jesus after they got married. He's not talking about entering into a married relationship with somebody that doesn't love Jesus. Okay. Now, I want to do something. First by way of application and then something that's really risky and might not work and might create messes that we can't clean up between now and Thanksgiving. All right, so, so here's the application and then we'll get, we'll get weird. Here's the application. Two things. First of all, if you're, in, if you're in a difficult marriage, hey, your church family wants to love you and come alongside you. If, if you're feeling the temptation towards divorce for non-biblical grounds, if, if you're feeling like you've just fallen out of love, which we'll talk about in a minute, if your spouse is just difficult, if you have a hard time communicating, man, like, we're not gonna judge you and we're not gonna ostracize you. What we are gonna do is pray for you and resource you and do everything we can possibly do to help you work towards having a God-glorifying, beautiful marriage. So if that's you, please don't deal with that by yourself. Don't do that by yourself. There, there's people in this room that have gone through years, sometimes even decades of difficulty in their marriages and they've stayed faithful to their spouse and faithful to Jesus and they actually wanna help you. The second thing I wanna say is if your spouse isn't a follower of Jesus, we wanna serve you. We wanna serve you as you love them as you pray for them, as you share the gospel with them and your kids. And we actually wanna be a people of hospitality where you can bring your non-believing spouse into community here and they're not gonna be made to feel weird or like they're a project, but they're gonna feel and experience the love of God. Now, now we get to the experiment. Here's what I wanna do. This isn't gonna take long, but what I wanna do is pull back from the Corinthian context. They've got this Hellenist view of the body. They've got this over-realized eschatology where they're super spiritual. I, I don't wanna just get immersed in their context. I wanna pull back for just a second, and I wanna talk about our context. And, and I wanna talk about just, just how difficult it is to read and to hear teaching that just teaches the Bible's teaching on marriage and sex. Why is this so hard? Like, why does it make our chest get tight? And, and why do we get angsty? And why do we feel ourselves wanting to push back? And why does it feel sometimes when we hear about a Christian vision for marriage or sex or singleness that we're being sold a straight jacket and being told that it's a winter coat, right? Why do we wanna, why do we wanna shove 
Christian teaching about marriage and sex and singleness away? Why do we feel that temptation? And what I'm gonna say over the next couple of moments, it isn't completely nuanced, it's a bit of a caricature, it's not gonna cover everything, but sometimes a caricature can help you recognize features. And what I believe is happening is that there's this interesting interconnected matrix about how we, how we view the end of some important things, how we view the purpose of some important things. And that interconnected matrix of the way we view marriage as modern Westerners, the way we view love as modern Westerners, the way we view the self as modern Westerners, and the way we view God as modern Westerners creates a bulwark against the redeeming work of God when it comes to sex and marriage. It creates a bad taste in our mouth when we hear a different vision for marriage and sexuality. And so I just wanna walk you through, and I wanna talk about Jesus as God's ultimate and final revelation, what he has to say about these things. So quickly, just follow with me. Marriage, what do we believe in our cultural moment about marriage? Generally, not every person in this room to the T, but what's the air that we're breathing in? What's the water that we're drinking culturally? Well, marriage essentially in our cultural moment is about romantic consumerism. Marriage is all about finding the one, the one. And, and what is the one? The one is our soulmate. What are we asking of our soulmate? Oh, not a lot, just for them to complete us. To fill up everything that's lacking in our lives, to make everything that's numb full of life, to always be interesting, to never be boring, to always be sexy, to make us happy because we're sad and we need a soulmate. And we've so bought into that. And by the way, like, isn't that the story of almost every Disney princess movie? It's been a while since I've seen the new ones. But that is the plot line, right? It's, it's the soulmate story. It's romantic consumerism. Romantic consumerism. And we so believe that story that, listen, that if you get married and at some point realize that the person you've married isn't the one, or if you get married, if you get married, and the person was the one, but they no longer feel like they are the one, not only do you have the option of fracturing that covenant, but you're actually bound to be true to yourself and break the covenant. You even, in the language of our culture, you even owe it to your kids to do that. And so the end of marriage in our cultural moment is just personal fulfillment. It's personal fulfillment. It's romantic feelings that lead to personal fulfillment, and if the person can provide that, great, and if they can't, next, next. Now, this is connected in the matrix to our view of love. What do we believe about love in our culture? Well, primarily we believe love is a feeling. Love is a vibe. Love is something that happens to us, right? Like, like uh, if you go into an unsafe workspace and are like, X amount of days, since someone has been injured on the job. Love's like that. You can slip and fall into love. You can fall into it. You can fall out of it. Anybody ever had a nightmare where you fell out of your bed? Right? Love's like that. Right? You can just roll, roll right out of love and not see that coming. And what we believe in our culture about love, what we believe about love is that it's so connected to our feelings that we're bound to act accordingly to those love vibes and we're bound to listen to the voice that says, hey, you're in love or you're out of love, that becomes our ultimate compass. 
our ultimate compass. Now, this is connected to what we believe about the self. And I get that some of you guys are like, yeah, that seems like a really good idea of love. Fall in love, fall out of love. So, what do we believe about the self? What do we believe about the self? Here's what we believe in our cultural moment. We believe, we believe that we're ultimately accountable only to ourselves. And, and here's, here's where we take great liberty, but here's also where our bondage shows up. We, we believe that we have the authority and the mandate to self-create and self-author our lives. And like that project at first sounds really fun. It's like, hey, the most important thing is authenticity. There's no accountability. Throw off tradition, throw off religion, throw off family, throw off other people. Uh, self-create, self-author. That sounds like an amazing project. But here's what we're finding nationwide. What we're finding is that's actually a burden that's soul crushing and it's leading to profound isolation and profound anxiety. To self-create, to self-author, to make authenticity the highest goal of life, including being more important than faithfulness, makes it really difficult to have deep friendship with anybody, let alone a spouse. So here's what we've said so far. Um, there's this matrix, man, and you might not explicitly believe these things, but these are the things that are being preached to you all the time. It's this matrix that includes a view of marriage that's about romantic consumerism and love that's just about feelings and self as a project that you're in charge of creating and being authentic to. Where does God fit in the matrix? Well, in our culture, if we believe in God, we believe that God basically just wants people to be nice. He just wants people to be nice. And, and we believe that if there is a God, his central project for human beings is that we be happy as defined by culture. And we believe that God doesn't need to be particularly involved in our lives except when we get in a jam. And that God, if he exists, is certainly gotta be more like a granddad that wants to get us all the stuff we need to be happy than a father that actually corrects and disciplines us. Now, what I wanna do for just a couple of minutes is say that the Bible's teaching on marriage and love and self and God can feel so foreign to us, so even offensive to us, because it's so different than the world in which we're swimming. And what I wanna say today is that the center of the Bible is Jesus, not you keeping a code of moral conduct to earn the love of God. The Bible says that Jesus, Jesus is the word, capital W, made flesh. The Bible says that he's the way, the truth, and the life. That Jesus is God's final and best revelation or self-disclosure. And what I want you to see is that if you're gonna see a vision for marriage and a vision for love and a vision for the self and a vision for God that's compelling and beautiful, that actually has substance and weight to it, you're only gonna find that as you see the person and work of Jesus as the defining reality of all four, all four. So let me give them to you, fast, fast. What is marriage in Jesus? Well, marriage in Jesus is not ultimate, but it's a gift. And the calling to husbands in marriage is not a pursuit of a soulmate first and foremost, but it's pursuit of learning to be like Jesus as you love and honor and serve and care for a woman. 
You learn to be conformed to the image of Jesus, not in demanding that she serve you or be what you want her to be, or demanding that she fulfills all the things that you think you're entitled to. But the purpose of marriage for a husband is conformity to Jesus in which Jesus, who loves his bride and pursues his bride and honors his bride, becomes your model and your empowerment for what it means to be a husband. What does it mean to be a wife? It means learning conformity to Jesus. Learning to be more like Jesus in this marriage relationship as you receive your husband, as you trust in Jesus, as you honor your husband and relate to him like the church relates to Jesus. And in that context, to see kids as a gift from God that are to be raised in the fear and adoration of the Lord. And ultimately, marriage in Jesus is not even about marriage. Marriage is gonna be done away with. Marriage in Jesus from the very beginning of God's creation of it always was an icon that pointed to the beautiful union between Christ and his bride, the church. And therefore, listen, the end of marriage is the glory of God in Christ and the day is coming when you see the glory of God in Christ either when he returns or when we die and in that day your marriage will be done away with because it will have served its purpose. Let's talk about love in Jesus. Love in Jesus is not a vibe. It's not just a feeling. Jesus reveals, in fact, that God is love. God is love. And what we find in the story of the Bible is that the Bible's a love story from cover to cover because God is love. God is not a solitary God that's lived in isolation in eternity past. God is one God who's eternally existed in three persons. And the essence of God, if you tried to get to the very core of God, which we could never, we could never mine that deep, but what God's revealed about his essence is this. At the heart of God is self-giving love. Even before people existed, God was and God is love. Father loving the Son, and the Son loving the Father, and the Spirit loving the Son, and the Son loving the Spirit. One God in three persons, a community of love. And what we find is that the love of God is self-giving, self-sacrificial love that culminates, that climaxes in history in the self-giving sacrifice of Jesus to bring us into the love of God. That we were far from his love, and we didn't want his love, and he came to us in his love through Jesus. And what we find, what we find, this is wild, what we find is that God has placed so much value on you as a human being, so much value that you were purchased with the blood of his son so that you could experience the fullness of belonging to him in love. Now, self in Jesus, I'll go really fast. If you look at Jesus, what do you learn about yourself? Well, here's what you learn about yourself. You were created for God, not yourself. The telos of your life, the end of your life, the purpose of your life is not self-fulfillment, it's not self-authoring. You were made by God, you were made for God to glorify him and to enjoy him. And the problem, the reason the world is broken, the reason why wars exist, the reason why, the reason why violence exists, and hatred and abuse of every kind is because we turned away from the rule of God towards self-rule, towards autonomy, towards thinking that we could self-author. 
and it's broken everything. And so Jesus, in his love and mercy, goes to the cross for us, and he calls us to not self-author, but to find ourselves by laying down our lives and submitting to his lordship. By not being our own boss and our own Lord and our own accountability, but by surrendering to Jesus as Lord because he died for us and he's trustworthy. To be free from the tyranny of self-rule. And what does Jesus tell us about God? Well, first of all, Jesus is God. He's the third person of the Trinity, God in the flesh. But what we find in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is that God is holy and other and glorious and he's good. He's not distant and he's not disconnected, but here's what we also find because of the coming of Jesus. God has revealed himself as a father, as the father. And this is really important because I, <laughs> I'm stoked about what grandparents do and their amazing role in helping kids, serving grandkids. But listen, there is a pull as a grandparent to just be fun and enjoy your grandkids, and that ain't all bad. Like, when I'm a granddad, I'm just gonna be people. I'm gonna be handing out candy, money, whatever, man. It's like, it's gonna be on at grandpa's house. It will be on. I'll come up with a name that will bring shame on all their friends when they hear them call me by my grandparent name. But here's the deal. Jesus didn't die so that you could be brought into a grandpa's family. Jesus died so that you could be adopted by a father, by a father. And a father, a father cares more about the formation of a son, the formation of a daughter, than their personal happiness or even their comfort. A father disciplines, a good father. A father corrects, a father chastens, all in love. And what we find, what we find is that a lot of what the Bible has to say about God cuts against the grain of moral therapeutic deism where God, if he exists, just exists to make us happy. What we find in Jesus is that there's something God cares about way more than our definitions of happiness that we're imposing on him. What he cares about you is your eternal good forming you into a person of substance, forming you into the kind of person that can stand in the presence of perfect goodness and not be swallowed alive by it. And listen, that means, that means there's a lot of what your father is gonna do in your life that don't look like current, modern, therapeutic versions of wellness. He's gonna call you to self-denial, He's gonna take you to hard places. He's gonna call you to resolve conflict. He's gonna call you to a life of repentance and virtue and courage. So, before we pray, before we pray, man, my hope, my hope for you and for me is that the grace of God would help us to untie this matrix that's this interconnected worldly view of marriage and love, and self, and God, and that God would give us the gift that he has for us in Jesus, that we would receive these things in light of Christ, and that we would actually believe a better message and better news than the message of current, modern, self-help, romantic gobbledygook.
There's something way more powerful for you than wasting your life trying to find the one. Way more powerful. There's something way deeper and more beautiful in marriage. By the way, uh, a Christian view of marriage, it's the covenant and the fidelity that actually sustains and leads into the passion and the romance. It's not the passion and the romance that defines the covenant or the fidelity. God is good and he's faithful. He's good and he's faithful. So let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your faithfulness to pursue us, to love us, to correct us, to be with us. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak so clearly to all my brothers and sisters that you would shape them and form them. I pray, God, that you would meet us as we come to this meal, that you would feed our souls. Um, I thank you so much for all my friends in the room that aren't followers of Jesus. It's a, it's a huge honor and privilege that they would be here tonight. I pray, Father, that you would show them how much you love them and what you've done for them in Christ. I pray that they would know that they're always invited here, always invited here. Even when they disagree with everything that's taught, they're still invited to be here. We want them to be here. So I pray that you would bless them and draw them and speak to them. Pray all this in the name of Jesus, amen.